Um, but in the end, I ended up finishing after like six and a half hours of like getting lost and running out of water and like being saved by the nomad. The German lady is still lost out in the desert, right? <laughs> they, they never found her again. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 301. With more than 4 million wild animals within its borders, Tanzania has the largest concentration of animals per square mile of any country in the world. And that's why you want to go on safari there. No, I've never driven a car from London to Mongolia. I've never ridden a rickshaw across India. I don't own a safari company, and I've never run a marathon, especially never ran one without any training. So I'm not as interesting as today's guest, Scott Brills. But I do have a decent amount of travel cred, and I have traveled quite a bit. And every time I'm traveling, I'm traveling with my Tortuga Outbreaker backpack. So if you guys are looking to do crazy adventures or you're looking to do just regular adventures, the backpack that you want with you is a Tortuga backpack. They've just put out a brand new line of backpacks as well called their Set Out Backpacks, which look absolutely fantastic. I'm getting ready to take it on a trip with me for the very first time. You can check all that out over at TortugaBackpacks.com. Don't forget to use our promo code EPOP, that's E-P-O-P, all capital letters. That'll get you 10% off your entire order. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who is known for throwing some of the best Mexican brunches in New York City, despite not living there, who once drove an old car from London to Mongolia, and who also once or maybe twice, I can't remember, raced a rickshaw around India, twice, he's telling me, and who, despite being good friends... Now, for four years, I still don't know what he does other than, in his words, be a man of leisure. Scott Brills of scottbrills.com and pajomasavaris.com. Scott, thanks for joining me today and a huge welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Finally, uh, finally talking with you on the podcast. <laughs> years, years in the making here. And usually I give people a teaser at the beginning of the show. I'm like, all right, I'm going to tell them what we're going to talk about so they can get ready, kind of dig in. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. But today, I don't really know what we're going to talk about but I because there's so much <laughs> that you do. And like I said, despite knowing you for four years now, I'm still unsure how it all works. So this podcast is as much for me figuring out what it is you do as it is for the <laughs> listeners, which is going to be fun. But I guarantee that there will be some amazing travel stories and you'll be left shaking your head, guys, saying, how the heck does he do all that? When I get the man who I think can give the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world a run for his money, I kind of just turn it over to you, Scott, so you can uh, <laughs> you can give us all the ins and outs of everything you do. So... Let's start with that. A brief rundown of some of the things that you've currently got going on at the moment. 
All right. Um, brief rundown. I guess. I guess we'll we'll go into the details later. Okay. So and it doesn't in, have to be that brief. We yep. can just no, get no, it rolling I mean, here. We'll we'll do we'll do free form, but any anything you want to go into more detail about that's that's good. Um, all right, so right now I'm in Bangkok uh, here every fall uh, for a conference and just to get some work done. Next month I'm going to Tanzania to run a safari and to work on some business over there. The next month I head to India to do my third rickshaw. Uh, adventure around the country to finally say that I've circumnavigated the Indian subcontinent in a rickshaw. Uh, right at the end of January, I'm heading to South Africa to lead a uh, co-lead a safari with my friend Chase um, in Kruger National Park. Right after that, I head to Japan to uh, do one, possibly two trips, uh, leading two trips there. One is uh, a new one that I'm co hosting with my friend Jules, uh, that'll be a snowboarding and yoga retreat in Hokkaido for about a week. And then uh, the next month in March, I'll be leading my fourth Eat Japan culinary adventure tour, uh, where I take a small group of travelers and I introduce them to Japan through the history, uh, festivals, people, uh, culture, religion, and most importantly, food and drink of the country that I know and love so well. Um, and that takes us through to about uh, May, and, and that's that's as far out as I've got planned right now. Oh, is that is that it in the next seven months? That that's all. I was expecting so much more. <laughs> so there, you guys have it. You can now understand why I don't really understand what it is that Scott does, other than everything when it comes to to adventure and travel. And talk to people about how this, like, how you set up your life, because I, I think right away people are saying, "All right, wait." He's leading trips to Japan. He's leading safaris. He's doing adventure travel for himself. Like, how have you structured your life in a way that all of this is possible? Let's say uh, I started, uh, I, I lived and studied and worked in Japan when I was 18, 19 years old, uh, fresh out of high school. And I loved it so much. And I got back home and had to finish up my degree and ostensibly was going to get a, uh, a job, possibly uh, doing video game development or programming or 3D animation design. Um, but I realized once I went to Japan, came back, that I loved it so much, uh, being in another country, learning a new language, meeting new people. Um, and, and just being on the road. Uh, so I thought, okay, how can I make this happen where I have both the time and the resources, you know, especially money to make this, make this happen regularly. Um, you know, I didn't think like, okay, I was just gone for nine months. Like I can't just be like, okay, well that was good. And now I've got two weeks a year that I ha can have to myself and the other 50 weeks are my employers. So I decided to start up a company. Um, at the age of 19, doing web development, just because I already knew how to do it. I was doing it just on my own um, and till my friend got a, a job and he was paid two grand, um, I think senior year of high school. And I was like, wow, like that's a lot of money. And so I thought, well, maybe I can do it too. Uh, so I, I started up that company in 2002 and uh, it was just a solo gig, kind of like a lifestyle business. Um, I did it from where I was born and raised in Detroit while I was getting my degree. And uh, I would still spend about two months in Japan every year, uh, hanging out with friends. And I worked at a snowboarding lodge in, uh, in uh, Nagano. And every year I'd go back for like one semester of school, just on my own though. And as the years went by, my company got more and more successful. I had uh, more money and more time I could take off and, and the tools were becoming available where I could work remotely better with my web development clients. And so as years went on, um, gone for two, three, four, six months out of the year um, and until 
current day, I think uh, it's more like 10 months out of the year out of, out of the U.S. And so it's really just a matter of uh, just being a master of your own, your own time and, uh, and money, of course. When you started that, that trip to Japan, 1819, you said that kind of kicked off this desire and this wanderlust to really go, go, go. Had you done much travel before that? Had you grown up in a traveling family or was it, or was that like a big break and that aha moment where you thought, all right, this is now, you know, 15, 16, 17 years later, this is basically not just a part of your life, but the main part of your life is to travel and get out and do things like this. Um, I, I always had the inclination to do it, but of course, like when you're growing up and, and you're in school and whatnot, you don't really have that autonomy or money to be able to do kind of you know things like that. I was I was really lucky in that um, I had grandparents that traveled a lot. Like in the '80s, they went to USSR, to China, places like that that not a lot of people went to. And every year when I visit them in Florida, they'd have uh, you know pictures and and stuff like that, that they'd show, and that kind of like stoked my interest. Um, and at 13, I actually did a study. Of, like a cultural exchange, let's say, um, in China for three weeks. And, and that really, that really stoked the, the fire to travel, but I was 13. So like I got back and it's like, okay, head back to high, uh, middle school or high school. Um, so I always had it in my head, even from a pretty young age that I wanted to go out, but I didn't have the resources to do it. And then when I went to Japan, I, I realized, wow, like I really like this. You know, it's the first time away from home, first time in a foreign country and being, um, you know, kind of engrossed in all the stuff that comes with it, the the language and everything and the culture. Um, so it was after that that I realized, well, now I have the means to possibly, you know, make this happen and you know, more or less full time. And, and so I did it thinking, well, I'm going to do it while I can. And who knows, maybe like I'll, I'll finish college, I'll get a degree or I'll get my degree and then I'll, I'll get a job somewhere. Um, and this might just be temporary, but, but it ended up not being so temporary. Talk a little bit about, uh, all right, so we, we've got you leading trips in Japan, and you've talked about some of the ones you're going to co-lead. You also have a safari company. So you've got, you've got like the Japan front covered because you're leading trips there. You've got the safari company. Which of those came first, and what was the decision, like how did the decision come about to then start leading trips for other people versus just, you know, traveling yourself and saying, all right, I like this country, so I'm going back to Japan. Now this is folded into one of your many businesses is the fact that you are running tours to these different places. The safari company, uh, I, I went on safari in 2010 with my father. It was on his bucket list to kind of do a, a wildlife safari in Africa. And he brought me along with him. And we had three guides. Uh, we were a part of a group of 16 Americans that went together for, I think, about two weeks uh, and did a classic like wildlife photo safari in the Serengeti. And uh, I became friends with one of them, uh, one of the three guides. He was very personable, uh, great English, knew everything about the animals, uh, wasn't that much older than me. And you could tell, like, out of the three guides, each one with their own land cruiser, you know, where people would, you know, each the group would kind of subdivide itself every day and get into one of the three land cruisers. Everyone wanted to be in his. And uh, it so happened that after that trip, I was on my own for a bit, going to the island of uh, Zanzibar on my own. And then doing Kilimanjaro, climbing Kilimanjaro with a friend of mine. And I stayed in touch with, with my, my new friend, Josh, and he helped me kind of sort some stuff out for my trip. And at the end, I, I met his family and his children. And I just kind of proposed to him, you know, I know how to do business and do it remotely without having to be here in Tanzania. And you obviously know what you know here in Tanzania. He had about 15 years of experience at the time guiding. 
and I said, you know, hey, like, let's see what we can do. Let's start up a company and uh, see if, you know, how we can bring this experience to, to more and more people, especially like younger people. And uh, so that was in 2011. We started up. And uh, ever since then, you know, we've, we've been growing slowly every year. This year we grew a lot. Next year we're planning on growing quite a bit. Um, but the whole Japan trip thing came later, and I actually didn't even do that until 2014 uh, with my first Eat Japan trip. Um, and that just came about because I was going to Japan every year, and a lot of my good friends knew that I loved it and whatnot. And, and a lot of those friends loved things like sushi and eating other Japanese food and whatnot. So I had the idea like, hey, guys, like, I'm going to be in Japan anyway. You want to come with me, and I'll show you around. It's because like, I'd love to be with my friends. I'd love to show you this country that I love so much you know, to people that have never been there before. And so um, first couple times I did it pro bono. Like, I, I just said, like, hey, this is how much it costs me. Just pay me that. And I kind of got it down as far as like what to do and, and what works best and the amount of time and the amount of people and stuff like that. And so um, the third time, second time, I think I made a, a couple hundred bucks person. The third time I actually charged like a decent rate. And then the fourth time, which I'm doing this year, um, I'm charging more about what I think it's worth, but I, I, I still think it's, uh, it's uh, not at its full value right now. But um, yeah, like I, I did that in 2014. I had such a great time doing it. I did it again the next year. Some of the people that were there in 2014 came back again with me to do a different route the next year. That's how you know and you've then, done a good job, right? When you get people yeah, who are yeah, like, they, I was there. And these are people who love traveling usually and want to go all over the yeah, place. And they're coming back yeah, yeah. to the same country with the same person to see a different part of it. You, That's when you're like, yeah, I'm on to <laughs> something here. Yeah, yeah, true. I, I thought the same thing, you know, and... Uh, I just, I think it, it helps that, like, I mean, I speak Japanese fluently. Um, I know where to go. I have a bunch of relationships over there that allow me access into the spots that a lot of people don't know about or in a few cases are really hard to get into. Um, you know, I make those reservations months in advance, and I, I do a lot of research into what's happening at what time in order to, to make the trip really special and something that you couldn't get on your own. Like, even if, if you go to, on your own to Japan, you're going to have a good time. I promise you that. Um, I don't really know anybody who's gone to Japan and not liked it, but um, it's a totally different level if you go with somebody that speaks the language that knows the area. Uh, and so, yeah, I guess my my idea was just uh, backed up by the fact that like people really loved it. They gave great testimonials. They came back with me again. And so I decided to kind of like do it on the side. Like it's not something that I can, um, I can put out there and, and just kind of like automate it or I can delegate it to someone else. Like I do it because I really love doing it. I love showing people Japan, and um, yeah, I make a little bit of a little bit of what I call like beer money on the side. That's great, but I do it because I love it, and it's not the it's not the thing that's going to you know make me a ton of money in the long term. Um, you know, like I hope the the Safari company will will be, and then I also have a, a another uh, web development company I started up that does WordPress websites for companies. But um, yeah, just it's a passion project basically. Yeah. So. If we go to Japan together, are you going to be able to get me into Jiro's or no? So funny thing is, I, I get that all the time. Right. And uh, our, our buddy Matt is actually planning on going over there next month. Uh, Nomadic Matt. And uh, he's, he's planning on going there. And he has a few of our friends joining him. The thing is, though, is that I did try to get in there a few times. I did everything right. You know, I, I tried going through multiple contacts, a photographer that shot him and... Um, all these different things. Like it's very 
particular, the way you're supposed to make a reservation and everything. But the thing is, they'd never answer their phones because they don't need to. They're already booked out so much. They don't, they don't give a crap about <laughs> getting more business at all. Um, so I, I was kind of interested in, in asking around for people that had been there. Some of my friends that live uh, in Japan, both foreigners and Japanese people. And, uh, and this is backed up by if you, if you do a Google search of people that have been there, that have been to Jiro's. Um, hey, I love the movie too. Awesome. I really appreciate someone that puts that kind of time and, and meticulousness into their craft. And the movie was spectacularly made and great imagery. Um, however, the, the general consensus of people that have gone there uh, has been uh, they don't feel welcome. They all feel rushed. If you don't speak Japanese, um, it's a very – it's not – it's just a very kind of rushed affair, especially if you don't speak Japanese. Um, but even if you do, it's rushed. Uh, generally, you get in and out of there in about 45 minutes because they have to seat another table. Or it's just a few seats on the bar. I'm yeah, sorry. what is so it? Nine, nine seats yeah, at the bar, eight right? Nine. Eight or nine? Yep. And, uh, and so they get them in and out uh, within like a pretty strict 45-minute window because they put the sushi in front of you. Um, you eat it. And while you're eating it, they're already making the next piece. And it's only a certain number of pieces. And, um, and so like you're spending that, that's $300, uh, for, I think it's something like 14 pieces of sushi, uh, nigiri sushi. And I have gone to many restaurants all over Japan, Michelin star restaurants. Um, and I have had some great experiences that I share with the people that I go on my trips with that are way better than that. Um, you know, like when I go somewhere, I don't want it to be that kind of like formulaic and I want to, I want to talk with the restaurateur, the, the chef. I want them to tell us about each, each ingredient and whatnot and, and what they're going for, for each dish or each piece of sushi. Like I really want to learn about that myself and then tell my, my guests about that. And so it's not really the kind of experience that I'm looking for, um, to show my guests, like I think the only reason I would go there, or I think why a lot of people want to go there, is just for the street cred. Like you, yeah, it's it's just to say that you've been there. And would I turn down an invitation? No, but just for the street cred, and just I guess to say, like to people that yeah, I've been there myself, and yes, it's the same as the reviewers say, um, you know, on all the food blogs and whatnot. Um, you know, they're not very friendly. It's very rushed. It's quite expensive for what you get. And with that amount of money, you can have a more enjoyable, uh, leisurely experience elsewhere. Yeah, essentially, you can have an experience with the places that you're going that you would hope to get at Giro's because it is a nine-seat thing. And maybe you did get before it became so, so, so big. I don't know. Um, one of the reasons I'm just so fascinated with it, well, not only because of the movie, but when I was watching the movie the very first time and he was riding the train, and I sat there thinking... That train looks exactly like the local train that goes right by my house and takes me up to the school that I work at. I'm like, Heather and I were talking about it and we're like, no, no, no. That, that can't be it. Like, there's literally a million trains in Japan. And then he gets off and goes to the eel restaurant. And as he's walking to that eel restaurant, if anyone's seen the movie, uh, you, you might remember this. If you haven't watched the movie, Jiro Jim's a Sushi, it is a fantastic movie. He's walking to the eel restaurant and I'm like, that is the exact eel restaurant that I bike by on my way to school. So little did I know... Jiro grew up in the town, tiny town, right at the foot of the Japanese Alps of maybe 3,000 people that I, that Heather and I lived in and that I worked in. 
and I thought, this is crazy. Um, and, you know, so there's that connection. I just thought, not that I'd be able to tell him that in my broken Japanese, or, or maybe I would. I'd just say, Tenryu, and he'd be like, what, what is he saying? Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, and, and when that came out, I thought, oh, man, like, this is cool, but this is going to get only infinitely harder to get in to, to have an experience and, and things like that. But uh, I would still I would still take up the offer. Again, some for street cred, some for like, you know, if, if he's supposed to be this good, it'd be cool to go. But um, yeah, sushi in Japan, Scott, I, I mean, you could talk to this even more than me. It's, it is so amazing. Like it, for such simple ingredients and simple, what you would think would be simple, it it just runs a gamut, you know, like any type of food, but especially because the taste is so clean and so different of what is like really, really good. And I remember the first time I spent a lot of money or what I thought was a lot of money and certainly not 300 for sushi. I'm like, can this really be that much better? It's $10 for one piece of, you know, shrimp nigiri. Like, is this really that good? And then I had, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> It really is, yeah. Like, there's there's very few places uh, you can get that kind of experience. I mean, there's there's a few restaurants in the U.S., and, but uh, I, I think by and large, even if you love sushi, probably unless you've been to Japan, have not tasted that level of sushi before. Yeah, I want to run back to the to the idea of the safari real quick because I love that you said you met a guy and he was cool and your age and you know you guys got along and all of a sudden you thought hey he knows a li- he knows obviously a lot about being a guide I know about business we're going to start a business because you know, a lot of people when they're traveling have similar thoughts I've certainly met people where I I've said like oh I could I could work with this people. Uh, this person or or I want to have an import export business of this bead company from Kenya, you know, whatever. There's all these <laughs> things that you get in your brain when you're traveling, right? Talk us through a little bit of the like of the process that that was because I'm interested from from your perspective of, hey, we're going to start this company. And that was six years ago. And now it's really starting to getting rolling and, and things like that. But what were some of the obstacles and what were some of the really interesting parts of starting a business like that, a safari business where you're not in the country and you're working with someone who is there and it's in kind of a niche that, that you're not you know, that isn't right up your alley. Like you haven't run safari companies or you haven't run a big travel company before or anything like that. Because uh, when I first met you, I asked you what you did. And this is why I still am trying to unpack it all. You said, oh yeah, I run a safari company. I'm like, who is this tall white guy who's like in Portland telling me he runs a safari company? Like, how is this working? So what was that like when it got started and, and the interesting and maybe tough parts of starting a company that is something like that, that is so different? Um, well, I mean, I went into it with kind of a different um, plan. I, I was basically thinking, okay, I'm going to throw up a website because I know how to do that. I've been making websites for a while. And then I'm going to grab commission from each sale we get through the website and pass it on to Josh, my partner, and take maybe like 25% commission of the profit. Um, well, that kind of morphed into me having a company registered in Tanzania and a company registered in the U.S. and doing everything 50-50, work and, and profit, basically. It, it evens out pretty nicely. It was good to have done it before getting into it, of course, like have, having done a safari, because I could at least talk about it to potential guests and um, kind of do what I was talking about. Um, but a lot of it had to be learned, like just um, the fee structures and the rules about having companies there 
Um, Tanzania is kind of nice just because it used to be an, an English colony, and so a lot of the laws based on English law, um, and all the government paperwork is in English, and the government is pretty stable and everything. So it, you know, based on the the continent of Africa, it's one of the better, more stable countries, in my opinion, that you could do business in, uh, especially as a first timer. But you know, that being said, um, there's a famous uh, saying that you know, if you live in Africa or have traveled through there for a while you hear, which is TIA, this is Africa. And that's what you say when, every, when anything goes wrong or not as planned, you say, this is Africa. Um, and just kind of like, uh, kind of like a Hakuna Matata, which they, funny enough, side note, they actually say that over there. Hakuna Matata is Swahili and, and they say that in Uganda, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, although it's, it's actually, uh, they, don't, they only say that for the tourists. It's actually more called uh, Hakuna Shida. That's that's the way the locals say it. All right. So but, if you uh, want to be yeah. in the know, Hakuna Shida <laughs> when you go over, right? Yeah, yeah, Hakuna Shida. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's just like any other business that you get in. A um, lot of learning, a lot of consulting with my partner, and, and figuring stuff out. Um, and uh, figuring out the best way to sell it on my end, and how to present things. And um, you know, a lot of times I get questions from potential guests and I'd be like, I don't know how to respond. And I'd have to go to my partner and email him or, or do a WhatsApp message or something. And, uh, he'd get back to me and I'd write the reply. And over time, you just kind of remember the important parts. You got everything written down and, and you know how to price stuff out. Um, uh, but yeah, total, total learning experience, um, throughout the years. Not, we haven't really had any big issues of any kind. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I count myself as lucky, but a big part of it is having a, a competent, trustworthy partner um, in what, wherever, you know, whatever country you're doing business in, or even if it's your own country. I was just talking about that with uh, a guy I was, I was having drinks with last night. You know, that's, that's the main thing. Like, if you're in any partnership, of course, like, either partner can make it or break it. And uh, so I'm really lucky that I was able to meet the person I met, Josh, because if I hadn't, um, this would not be a thing. Uh, you know, like I, but I could tell in the beginning, you know, right away that he's just personable, um, very trustworthy, great all around guy. And, and that's actually something that's even echoed by our guests, all of our guests. Um, when he's the guy leading the trips, which he's not always able to do, he's got a family, he's got three kids, he has, um, other projects he's doing, but with Josh, like whenever people go on a trip with him, everybody just waxes on and on about how awesome he was and like how much he knew his stuff and what a great time they had with him. Um, you know, just to no end, like everyone says the same thing. So yeah, like that just kind of, uh, reminds me that I'm lucky that we happened to, to get together. And you just go with your gut, right? I mean, you, you meet someone and you, you say like, this is a good person. You know, I think a lot of times people get caught up when we're talking about business stuff, and especially if you're talking about doing it where you're going to be not near each other and you might be kind of diving into his domain more than, you know, because he's the one who understands it's on the ground there as far as the safari. You know, there's a lot of apprehension of, wait, wait a second, what's going on? But if you, if you go with your gut and someone's a good person and, and you see that and you see like the joy and energy and enthusiasm radiating off them, that's going to solve 90% of the issues that you're going to run into in the long run. Yeah, yeah, 
Definitely. And, and yeah, so I, I do go with my gut in that. Um, I've done other partnerships too. Um, some, some have worked, some haven't worked, but I've never been screwed over. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's just a, a difference of, you know, anything uh, that can that can cause something to not work out, but it doesn't mean like it's a failed project. And um, like I was also telling the same guy I was mentioning, I was talking with last night, um, you can mitigate risk by... Uh, working together for a while on like the setup of the company and, and putting the time in and not really have a big financial stake, um, which I've done with all my businesses as I've bootstrapped. And so there hasn't really been, you know, maybe a few hundred bucks each person, um, but you know, to get the ball rolling. And during that time, when you have no money in the game or just a little bit, you can get a pretty good feel for how things go. You know, is there a communication on point? Uh, they get back to you soon, you know, after you write them. Um, do you feel, you know, any kind of, uh, mistrust or whatnot, that kind of thing. And so, um, I think it's a great way to kind of treat any partnership is to, to have a lot of, uh, back and forth and, and talk about stuff very honestly and openly in the beginning to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And, uh, you know, after a bit of that, then you can feel free to maybe invest a little bit more money and, and invest some more trust and time into the partnership. Has the Safari company grown quicker than you thought, slower than you thought, kind of on par with what you thought? Because 2011, you know, you, you've had your six years in now. What what has it done in you know in relation to what your expectations were when you were starting it? Um, I, I would say slower, but I'd also say that is totally on me because um, <laughs> I was trying to do too many things at once. You know, classic uh, entrepreneurial ADD. Um, and I had my, my web development company, um, which is the, the same one that I started uh, when I was 19. That was still going on. I was trying to get out, out of the business. Um, I did because I needed to get out of the business because I wanted to put the time I was putting into the web development business into my Safari business. Um, however, after building up money to live off of and everything, uh, a bunch of contracts just kind of ended for whatever reason. You know, They just kind of came to the, the end of their life, uh, web development contracts and other contracts too. I was, I was teaching people around the world uh, how to use some software for GE and all this other like random side stuff. Well, it all stopped at the same time. So pretty quickly, I went through all my savings and then I was like, okay, well, I still don't have the Safari company to the point where I want it, but now I don't have any money either. <laughs> so then I got back into the, back into the web development game uh, with a new company that I actually started with my, my younger brother, Kyle. Um, in uh, in 2015 um, to get the money to put you know to live off of and to put into the Safari company, get that started. And luckily, it's a lot easier with a partner, you know, with my brother. Um, but uh, then I was able to focus on the Safari company a little bit more full time. So as of last year, 2016. So I've been doing it pretty pretty hardcore over the last two years, which is. Really what I had hoped to do maybe in the first two years after I started it in 2011, 2012, 2013. But due to those circumstances and due to me also at the time prioritizing uh, traveling around the world over business, uh, things were uh, delayed a bit. <laughs> yeah, we talk a, a lot about that with most guests and, and you know you especially and myself with that balance. And of, of course... You know, we we believe both of us that we that you can travel and run your business from anywhere, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
as easy to be bumping around and traveling and running your business or at least growing a business. And I think that you've seen that. And and when we talked last too, Scott, you know, it's like sometimes you do have to bunk down and you have to say, all right, I'm going to spend two, three, four months in this area to focus solely on, on building the business and getting the big picture things out, right? Like getting the bigger projects moving so that then when you are traveling, the day-to-day you can handle or, you know, the minutia and things like that. But it's really tough to be traveling and pushing big things forward if you haven't set the wheels in motion or you haven't have a you don't have a team who's helping you do it and things like that. Right. Yeah, that's that's a big point that I've been working towards is, is automating a lot of stuff and uh, eventually delegating some of it um, because I thought if anybody could do it, I could be the person that would travel nonstop and, and have a business going and whatnot. And I tried it. Um, and it, it worked okay, but like I wasn't, it was still more lifestyle money. It wasn't big money. Um, and so I realized that end of 2014 and um, I realized, okay, well, I have to stay in one place longer. And it took a year to kind of settle, let's say, because after a few years of traveling pretty hardcore, um, I was used to it. But in 2015, I ended up uh, <laughs> going out with a bang. I, I, I went to 120 two or 123 different places that year, um, which equals a, a different place, meaning like I'm sleeping somewhere different that night, which equals uh, changing up spots every 3.25 days, if you do the math. And I was doing it the whole year and I just realized, wow, this is not working. You know, if I want to, if I want to do, you know, get my business up to power or businesses, should I say, um, I've really, you know, I've tried it. It just doesn't work when you're moving places every few days or every week. And so starting in 2016, I'm like, okay, I gotta, gotta hunker down and spending, you know, that year I spent one, two, three months in each place. And I realized, wow, I'm just so much more efficient. I'm getting stuff done. I'm able to set routines and, uh, Hey, like I tried it. I thought like, Hey, you know, that's for other people. I don't need to do that. But <laughs> turns out it's true. <laughs> it, it is true. If you want to be, if you fully want to become a man of leisure, right? You do have to build a business big enough that makes you enough, right? That you can fully be at leisure. Um, and, and I do, I remember having that discussion with you and chatting about it. And you say like, I'm going to take 2016 slower. And I thought, Finally, <laughs> right? Like, like you know, because make you look bad. Yeah, people look at my Facebook. Be like, wow, how does he do all that? I'm like, good. Don't look at mine. If you really want to see someone who's doing something crazy, go look at Scott's because he's all over the place. Like, I can't even keep up. And and um, you know, not that it was like a vindictive. Finally, obviously, you know that, but it was a all right. Like, at least Scott can't do it. Like, I knew that I couldn't do it bumping around that quickly. But I was like, if someone else can pull it off, I feel like I should be able to. Um, it is. It's very, very difficult. What was that like then? I mean, I know you said like in your head, you said, all right, 2016, I'm going to have to slow down. I want to build this stuff up. I want the Safari company to go. I want the web development thing to start happening. But knowing it in your head and then having to do it in your heart and that antsy feeling that comes about, which most of us have and people listening have because they love traveling, was it? Did you find yourself fighting yourself at times during that during those that year of, you know, and again, you were moving every one to three months, so we're not talking about settling down totally, but was there a push-pull going on? Um, I, I had gotten over most of that over the, the prior couple of years. Uh, I was fighting a lot of it in 2014 and 
in 2015, I was planning on staying in one place more often, but I ended up going the opposite direction, like I said, and going to more places than I had ever been before. Um, and so that kind of like in 2014, I realized what I had to do. In 2015, I got the last bit out of my system as far as struggling, you know, like what am I going to do? Um, and then 2016, I started, um, you know, finally to get back to the more focused business uh, aspects. Because I, you know, I, I realize you're getting older, and um, and I've I've already been to you know almost 100 countries. Uh, you know, I've been very lucky to have that kind of life. But you know, do I want to keep doing that forever? I don't want to be a backpacker. I don't want to, you know, just be struggling to stay ahead or or making you know a few thousand bucks a month or something like that just to keep up traveling. Um, you know, there's there's bigger goals out there. I want to make uh, businesses that that outlast me. I want to you know create change in the world. There's a lot of other goals I had that were separate from travel. And so it was just a matter of spending those couple of years just kind of been like, yeah, yeah, like I should really do that now. Oh, but like there's this cool party I was invited to. And then there's like, oh, there's a conference in Thailand. And then there's like this and that, you know, and I was just kind of being reactive instead of proactive uh, in a few areas of my life. And so uh, it's just a matter of that happening and over and over and being like, oh yeah, like I really need to change. But then realizing that there's no change happening. You just keep doing the same stuff over and over because it's fun. It's fun traveling all over the world. You know, I'm sure some people are listening being like, oh, poor baby, like you're traveling too much. You know, like I'd love to have that problem. Um, but I guess it's one of those uh, more money, more problem type things. Uh, <laughs> you know, like it's, there's, there's problems either way. And so I realized that uh, I had to create the change myself. I could keep doing what I was doing and, and better not expect any change to come to your life or you can take a stand. And so um, funny enough, I think the biggest thing was like that before 2016, um, at least for a few years when I was traveling quite a bit, um, I was only working when I had nothing better to do. Like when, like, yeah, of course I was staying on top of emails and projects and whatnot, but it wasn't a priority of mine um, because I had the money saved up from my previous ventures. Uh, I was pretty comfortable. I didn't really want for much. And I think uh, I kind of got lazy. And, and there was, like I said, there's a lot of fun distractions. You know, when you, you, you know, we've got a lot of the same friends and, you know, when someone says, Hey, like, let's go surfing in Bali or Hey, like, let's do that. You want to go, like you want to hang out with your of cool friends <laughs> some fun place and you want to just, just kind of uh, f around for a bit, and so um, I just realized, you know, like, hey, nobody's going to change this except for me. And uh, took a while to like actually process that. Um, but then I I started off 2016 with a month, just a month, but I had not spent a month anywhere for a while uh, in Budapest. And uh, then I followed that up pretty soon after with two months in Turkey and then three months in Thailand. And it's just kind of building up that muscle. The muscle. You know, to stay in one place. And I, I still had urges during those times to like hop on a motorcycle and just like go out into the woods and stuff. Cause it's tough, like after all that fun travel and parties and stuff to sit in front of your computer for 12, 14 hours a day in a room by yourself every day, week after week, which is what I was doing. I went to the equivalent of cold Turkey, you know, like I was like, all right, I got to do this. I'm going to, I got to catch up on time. I've got like two or three years to catch up for. So now I got to work harder than everyone else and make up for that lost time. And that's really how I felt. And that's actually almost two years after that, how I still feel. Um, and I'm still spending a lot of time with just me, my computer, uh, you know, most days of the week and just hunkering down and doing it. But I've gotten to the point where it's, it's natural. Like I, I I don't mind that I'm doing it. I'm, make, I'm seeing solid, like steady progress. And, 
and uh, and I know eventually, like I'll be very successful in every single thing that I'm doing. Uh, but it just takes time and effort, and that's what I've been putting in. And that is can sometimes be as rewarding as the travel, right? When you see a business take that next step or or something that you're working on, whether it be a business or or even a passion project or whatever, you see it grow, 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 grow. There are times where I get as excited about that kind of stuff as I am when I'm out motorbiking around Bali or, you know, or in Thailand or something. It's a different feeling because it's it's, it's, it's not immediate. Right. It's not immediate. Exactly. That's it's a longer <laughs> term. Like I had to wait for this and work for this. It's not, Hey, I am on the beach right now and this feels awesome, but uh, I'm with you. And it, and it, I think it's something that everyone hits a point where they have to make their own decision for them. Now you mentioned some of the places that you were in 2016, that you were kind of your hot spots, like where you bumped around to, do you have a few places that you find yourself going back to that you really just enjoy or you find are just conducive to you getting a lot of work done? Cause you know, for whatever reason, there isn't distractions or it's just a great place to be or whatever. Yeah. Um, anywhere where it's inexpensive to live, uh, where they have good food, um, and that I've been before, so I don't get tempted to go out and sightsee or like meet up with friends all the time. Uh, funny enough, one of the spots is Bangkok. Um, I, I've come here every year. For, this is the first fifth year uh, now, and um, you wouldn't really think of that, but it's it's inexpensive. It's got great food. It's easy to get around in. I know a bit of Thai now, so I don't get scammed left and right. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I, I just feel like I've done I've done Bangkok, and so. Um, it's somewhere where I can just kind of like sit still and be on my computer and not feel like I'm missing out. I don't feel a lot of FOMO. Um, Turkey as well, I've been to maybe half a dozen times and uh, very different than Thailand, of course. But again, like inexpensive, great food, um, pretty easy to get around. Again, I, just, I don't know a little, little bit of Turkish enough to, to kind of get around places and order food, that kind of thing. Um, and Japan, of course, because you know, I, I speak Japanese and it's uh, I feel very comfortable there. I'd, I'd say almost as comfortable as in the U.S. Um, and then the U.S., of course, just because you know that's a, of course, by far the easiest spot to uh, to live and, and get around with being being born and raised there. With Japan, obviously not as cheap as you know Turkey, Thailand, things like that. Have you found that because you have spent so much time there, because you speak Japanese? you know, you feel comfortable there. Have you found that that substantially lowers the amount that you're paying when you are staying there? Like makes it infinite, not infinitely cheaper, because that would be zero, I guess, but makes it substantially <laughs> cheaper than, than someone to be in Japan. <laughs> yeah. Than someone else who like me who would come and and might know a little bit, but obviously can't get around near as well as you. Um, Japan is not as expensive as, as a lot of people think. Um, it used to be. Um, now that's been eclipsed by a lot of, of places um, around the world, and, and Japan has definitely fallen. Um, I think you know there's a bunch of different reports that focus on how expensive cities or countries are to live in. But if you check any of the recent ones, Japan is really not that high. And even if it is, like they're talking mostly about Tokyo, right? And uh, it would be. A lot of that is uh, is rental prices as far as like hotel prices or if you're renting an apartment um, and you want something that's Western size standards, uh, like Western standard size apartment or something like that. Yeah, you're going to be paying a lot. So you just have to adapt yourself. Um, you know, you'll be living in smaller space. Uh, but and on the flip side, you've got a great transportation system. You've got amazing food. Um, when I was there for I, I got an Airbnb at the end of my 
uh, Eat Japan trip I did last year, or no, earlier this year, um, uh, next to the ocean, three-minute walk to the beach, four-bedroom house. Um, I was paying 925 bucks U.S. a month for that. Uh, so I had this whole house to myself near the beach and had fiber internet, and it was great. Uh, now, if you add people to it in Japan, like even hotels, they charge you by the person, not the room, and so it would have been that much more expensive. Um, but I was going to the grocery store, and, and I was cooking my own dinner every night just about, and uh, of course, that saves a ton of money. And knowing where to... Um, where to get good food. I mean, like there's good food everywhere. You can get the food at the convenience store and that's pretty good. Uh, it's not like the hot dogs that have been sitting on the, on the grill for hours at seven 11s in the U S No, you but, get some uh, good on a gear. You can, you can get yeah, everything yeah. at the convenience, man. Those are like yeah. havens, especially for foreigners. Right. I'm like, I don't yeah, know what's like, going I, on. It's, it's not, it's not that expensive. Like I looked at the price only duty here in Thailand and Bangkok, um, versus the price in Japan. They're the same price. Uh, you know, so it's, it's just kind of knowing where to get the inexpensive stuff in Japan. And, and there's a, a site that I think, uh, uh, he's a friend of mine. I don't know if you know what uh, Chris Kirkland, he does Tokyo cheapo. Do not know it, but that's a, that's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he, he's a buddy of mine and he runs a website basically based on telling people that are visiting or living in Japan, how to do it on the cheap and like not to suffer and, and, you know, to, to, to just eat, uh, like cup noodle every day, but to, to actually have like a good time and to be aware of these like lower cost alternatives for X. And so he runs this website free, free plug. Uh, you're welcome, Chris, you tokyocheapo.com. And, uh, and yeah, it's just like, he just shows people, uh, him and his team to show people how to, how to do things on the cheap over there. Yeah, I one of the problems I have with those, you know, most expensive cities to live in list, and I get it, you need there has to be some baseline, there has to be some standards so you can compare them all. But they always are comparing, hey, this is a what you a Western style thing. So sometimes you get, you know, cities in Africa that are way high up there because in order to get a Western style and Western level apartment that's two bedrooms, it's you know, clean has all this stuff. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be paying crazy amounts because that's what the diplomats are coming in and throwing their money at and things like that. So there is, there is that, like you mentioned, and Tokyo's a similar type thing, right? If you need a 1500 square foot apartment in the middle of Tokyo, well, yeah, <laughs> you're going to be shelling out a lot of yen. But, you know, if you can make do with a, a Japanese style and something, you know, not that it has to be crappy, but it, it, something nicer, but is in that style, is in that size, substantially, substantially cheaper. Do you have some places in Japan, if people are listening, because you certainly know better than I do, that you just love, like would highly recommend, especially people coming as a tourist. Let's say they haven't been to Japan or they don't speak the language as much. Just some places that you would be like, you have to get here, here, and here. I mean, uh, Kyoto is definitely at the top of the list, um, but I... I have to, you know, admit that the price, since it's like the number one tourist uh, city in the country, maybe alongside Tokyo, um, the Airbnb and hotel prices are pretty expensive if you're going to stay there longer term. But it's definitely worth a few days to check out all the temples and the history and whatnot. It was one of the few uh, cities, bigger cities, that weren't bombed uh, during World War II uh, by kind of mutual covert agreement between the powers. Um, just there were actually people in the war effort for the U.S. that had been to Japan and, and been to Kyoto, and they knew how amazing it was. And so they kind of fought to uh, prevent it from getting destroyed by 
kind of doing back channel communication with the Japanese uh, military said like, hey, if you don't put factories there, we won't touch it. And so they, they didn't. And so that's how that city got spared. And luckily it did because it's just so amazing. So much history. Um, temples, the hiking around there, the food. Um, yeah, just one of my favorite spots. And I when I studied in Japan, I studied about 10-minute train ride away from there. So I'd be in Kyoto all the time. Um, and so it's really like my second home. I always, I always said that if I could have Kiyomizu Dera like to myself, you know, because there's a, obviously a ton of tourists because it's, it's amazing. But if I could have Kiyomizu Dera to myself or just me and a group of friends, that might be the most magical place that I could be in the world. I mean, it's, <laughs> I just love it. It's so beautiful and, uh, the, yeah, peaceful. And even with thousands of tourists tromping through, you can sit there and say like, yep, this is, this is an amazing, amazing spot. Yeah, I, I I would say um, Osaka doesn't really get the love that it deserves. Um, it's more of like a working class city. It's Japan's second city. You know, it's like the Chicago to New York City, uh, which would be Tokyo. Um, but a uh, really good city for food, um, for, for like all types of, of different Japanese food, uh, like comfort food, the traditional stuff, okonomiyaki, uh, things that you've probably have never seen at a restaurant, a Japanese menu in the States. Um, and it's also a lot cheaper. They've got a lot more housing available there. So you can get spots, you know, for, you know, pretty much downtown. So you can walk to places. It's a big city too, uh, you know, for a thousand bucks or less U.S. a month if you wanted to spend extended time there. So anybody I know that's kind of gone there and, and spend a bit of time getting to know the city, uh, it's actually a pretty fun place, Osaka. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's worth it's worth a couple of days to kind of explore uh, Kyoto. I would definitely give uh, three or four days. Um, a lot of people they I know they're like, oh, we're going to be in Tokyo mostly, and like pop down to Kyoto for a day or two. And I'm like, no, nah, like get <laughs> get rid of some of that Tokyo time, yes. put it into Kyoto for sure. I'm with you, man. <laughs> I am with you 100. percent 100 percent agree with that. So you've got obviously you got Tokyo, you got Osaka, you got Kyoto. What about some of the more off the beaten path or, ju- or just places that you really, that, that again, don't get as much love that you think, hey, if you could make mm-hmm. it here, you're going to see a-, a side of Japan that maybe not everyone gets to see? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's tons. I mean, a lot of them are just known for like one or two things. Um, like you got Himeji, which has the, the amazing, uh, amazingly restored uh, castle, um, Himeji Joe. And then you've got, um, Fukuoka. Fukuoka is really cool. Like that's that's been ranked one of the best cities to live in. Um, actually, in the world, uh, I think it's in the top ten. They they ranked it. It's not as expensive as a lot of the other cities, but a lot of uh, entrepreneurial ventures there, and uh, amazing food. That's like the birthplace of Japanese ramen, um, and uh, easy to get a, get around in. Uh, very open to foreigners. Uh, large young population. And uh, that's in the southern island of Kyushu. So it's got like a nicer uh, climate. It doesn't get as cold um, during during the year. And uh, you got at the at the end of that island, you've got Kagoshima, which is uh, it's the southernmost major city in Japan, uh, with the exception of, of Okinawa, which is way down south. And uh, I, I quite like Kagoshima just because it's got like it's right next to a, a volcano and um, it's very different. In the rest of Japan, like they, that's that's where they eat uh, a lot of tori sashimi, which is uh, raw chicken, like chicken sashimi, which a lot of people would never touch. But uh, it's actually it's actually pretty good when you dip it in soy sauce with uh, with garlic, and it's very fresh 
chicken, so you don't have any really risk of salmonella or something like that. All right, I'm you know, taking you up on that. When we go down there, <laughs> we got to get down there. The raw chicken yeah. sushi, man. Yeah, and, and like raw horse, uh, basashi, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of like really good uh, culinary stuff that you can only get in Kyushu, the southern island where Kagoshima and, and Fukuoka are, uh, that you don't really find as much on the main island of Honshu or it's not as good up there because it has to be kind of like imported. Um, also, the, the onsen town, the Japanese bath town of Betbu, which is also in, uh, on the island of Kyushu. Um, and then uh, the island of Shikoku, which is kind of in between Kyushu and Honshu, the main big island. The little one that gets uh, uh, lost in yep. the shuffle all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, not a lot of people talk about it, but I've found uh, there's actually some really cool festivals there. Um, pro tip, if you're, if you're going to Japan, especially during the spring and the summer, uh, go and Google. There's a, f- a few different sites to this. Uh, Google like uh, Japanese festivals or Matsuri, M-A-T-S-U-R-I and see if there are any going on in any of the places you're going to go to because that's one of my favorite parts about Japan are the Matsuri, the festivals. Uh, really cool, just like everyone just kind of drinking and having like these uh, food stalls and, and dancing. And it's, uh, it's very special. Like I, I think that everyone should, should try to like make it to one of those. Hopefully there's some going on like, you know, when you're going to go to Japan. Uh, but I, I really love that. And, and in Shikoku, there's like a lot of those uh, especially during the summer. And uh, there's like a, a pilgrimage route where you visit a bunch of temples. Uh, we walk in between them. I think there's like 111 temples. Uh, very well-known like p- pilgrimage mount. A lot of uh, routes, a lot of uh, mountains and forests. And it's like very virgin territory, uh, a lot of it. And so it's worth a, it's worth a trip down there if you kind of want to see less of the hustle and bustle, uh, a lot less tourists and more of like traditional Japan. Yeah, I got thrown into the fire when I moved to Japan because it was August and it was Matsuri season everywhere. So I remember one of the, it was like the second or third weekend I was there. Someone's like, hey, you want to go up in the mountains to this this festival? And I was like, sure, we're going to stay at this guy. He used to be an English teacher. He's retired now. You're going to stay at his house. And there's like five of us going up and... Uh, we went up and we were pulling the huge floats through the streets and it was like this, we were in the Japanese Alps. We we're like literally pulling these massive floats that people are standing on and sword fighting on top of and doing crazy stuff. And we dressed up and like they put me in blackface. I don't exactly remember why or know why, um, but like we were dressed up and we reenacted a play and we were, I guess, part of a competition that maybe we won and maybe we didn't. Either way, man, the Japanese festivals are are unlike anything else I've seen. They're just, they have a quality all of their own. I went to a tug of war uh, festival slash contest in between two prefectures, which is like their states, where we were like tugging the rope to see which prefecture got more land or something. And I think it was official. So I'm like, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I, it was like, you know, I could go on and on about the crazy things that I ended up doing there, but I'm with you. If, if you can go and you find a festival, um, it, it's just, they just love it, unlike anywhere else I've been. And, you know, mm. every town and every block on the town has their own floats and their own um, outfits and everything like that. And uh, it's just, it's a crazy fun experience. So I'm with you. So spring, summer is usually yeah. when you hit some of that. Um, some, in, some in fall, very few to my knowledge, really in winter. Um, so it, it's mostly uh, just like a lot of festivals worldwide. Uh, it's to celebrate the coming of spring and planting of crops. And it's to celebrate um, the harvest or 
uh, near harvest uh, of, of crops. Um, although I guess it depends a little bit different because they've got Obon, which is uh, the traditional like summer holidays, and that's more dedicated towards uh, ancestors and whatnot. So you're bringing you're bringing back so many memories here, especially hearing you say some Japanese words. I'm thinking like, hey, this is starting to translate here up in my head. Um, before you were running or before you were bunked down here in 20, 2016, 2017, and we got we got the working Scott and the more mellow Scott, you were all over the place, as you <laughs> mentioned, and you gave people some of your, your craziness in 2015. But you also did two two really cool things, um, you know, at least that I know of. I'm sure there's even more. But you did the Mongol rally and you did the rickshaw run and, and you did the rickshaw run twice. Explain to people what these were and what was the decision or what was the genesis to saying, yeah, I'm going to do one of these things. And then obviously you, you did it once and with the rickshaw run, you did it again. But these are things that you've kind of now set in your schedule to be maybe not yearly, but at least things you go back and do over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, the genesis of it was, I think in 2008, I read an article and like, some magazine that mentioned this this guy, Rama Age in the UK, that tried to just drive from the UK in some beater car to Mongolia one year, um, but then they stopped at like Ukraine because they didn't realize they didn't have visas. Uh, but then they did it again, um, I think a few years later, uh, with some friends, and like a few of them actually made it to Mongolia. And then they said like, let's make a thing out of this. And so they started up a group called the Adventurist. Um, this is all still going on today. It's, it's, it's actually gotten a lot more popular. Um, and I've known multiple friends that have done it uh, after I did. And uh, a, it's now a, a thing where you get a, an underpowered car and you start off in, near London at Southampton, the south of, of the UK, and you drive um, under the channel or you take the ferry over to France and then you just keep driving to Mongolia. And they set, they set the start date and they have a launch party. But after that, there's no set route and there's no help. And you just have to make it. You know, hopefully you've planned out a little bit. You got the visas that you need um, and you make it to Mongolia. And they set a date that hopefully some people are finished by and they throw a finish party. But uh, when you get there, it's kind of up to you, you know, depending on if you want to take it slow and, and kind of check out stuff along the way, which which we did. Um, or if you just want to, like, if you don't have much time off of work and you kind of got to get there quicker, then you just take a more direct route. Um but in 2008, when I read about it, uh, there's a good friend of mine uh, by the name of Colin, and we'd grown up together. And we thought, you know, hey, like, we'd really love to do, like, a crazy adventure before either one of us gets married or has kids or anything. And uh, so uh, originally, we were, gonna, <laughs> we were talking about walking the entire uh, expanse of the Great Wall of China. Uh, but upon a little bit of research, we found out that it would take about eight months and neither of us had the time or money to do that so when i read about the mongol rally i thought like hey like what about this and so we spent the next year or so raising money um well on our own to to buy the car and fix it up and everything but also we raised uh, separate money separate funds for charity because we were uh working with a rotary club in mongolia to help build a kindergarten in a very remote area and uh so we raised money for that and uh, we bought a car with our own money. We fixed it up with our own money, and then we shipped it over to the UK with our own money. And uh, we ended up going on this amazing adventure that, uh, you know, if anything, just sparked my desire to travel even more. And uh, I, in the end, I, I lost my partner. He had to 
had to go home. He ran out of money and uh, and had a, a job to start. And uh, losing our car because the car broke down on top of like a 10,000 foot mountain near the Chinese border. And we had to get, uh, we had to hitchhike back and we got rescued by this gangster who ended up buying our car in like crisp $100 US bills. Uh, and we had to like hitchhike back and then my my buddy Colin left and I had to get on the Trans-Siberian Express to go over to Mongolia by myself. And then I got there and ended up running a marathon in the Gobi Desert um, with no training experience or equipment, just on a whim. That kind of set the groundwork for what liking, you know, those kind of crazy off the wall, extreme adventures. And, uh, a couple of years later, I did something similar run by the same organization in India called the rickshaw run. And you take a tuk-tuk or an auto rickshaw. It's like a three-wheeled vehicle with a lawnmower engine on it that you've seen in Southeast Asia or Egypt or Middle East, uh, if you've been there. Uh, they kind of serve as like an open-air taxi. And uh, so you take, take this thing. You learn how to drive it over the course of a couple of days, and uh, you're basically renting it from the adventurous group. And they, again, set a start date, start party, and then they say, okay, make it over here, which is like two or 3,000 miles away. And you're on your own. I mean, the thing will break down. We broke down a bunch of times, uh, myself and another friend, Mike. And uh, we had a very challenging time, but it was also super memorable. And a few years later, I did it again with uh, another friend of mine. And uh, yeah, like I just, I I signed up again after that. (laughs) So now I'm doing it for the third time. So I could properly say I've circumnavigated the whole subcontinent. Um, And also, I forgot uh, in 2012, I drove to Cape Town from London, but that was not through the adventures. That was uh, our own thing. My, my a buddy of mine that I did the Mongol Rally with in 2009. Uh, one of the few Americans that was not on my team, but we kept in contact. Uh, we decided, uh, along with his girlfriend at the time and a couple of friends of mine, to create our own kind of adventure. Uh, we planned it out for a full year. It took five months to actually do. And it was one of the most like extreme things uh, I think even to this day that any of us have ever done. Very challenging. We had everything, everything that could have gone wrong basically went wrong. Uh, but still, like amazing, amazing adventure um, over the, the period of those five months uh, in 2012, driving through like 24 countries, something like that. Uh, tons of, of crazy stories from that, uh, even though things didn't go right. But it's, it's when things don't go right, they have the best stories. So what were you driving? So this is why I never want to cut you off, because once you start going, there's like stories that come off of stories that come off of stories that I've never heard. And at one time, I think we should just come on, I'll just ask you one question, we'll hit play. And then like two hours later, we'll get the whole scroll of your life, right? <laughs> oh, well, that led to that, that led to that, that led to that. So few few questions I want to hit on here. What were you driving when you went London to Cape Town? Was it was it a car again, or were you in something a little more off road friendly? Uh, so we chose to use uh, Subaru Foresters. We had two of them pre used. They're both fifteen years old. Each one had about two hundred thousand miles on it. We covered it in um, canvas to make it look like a Chuck Taylor Converse shoe. And we did a left shoe and a right shoe, complete with bows on it and everything. And so it looked like we were driving two shoe cars. So we named it Team Shubaru. And we drove these shoe cars. Um, we, again, we like shipped them in a container off to the UK. We drove them from the UK 
um, all the way down through Italy, took the ferry to Tunisia, and then over North Africa, along East Africa, down to South Africa. Um, but the, the bows broke pretty quickly, unfortunately, uh, just due to like the wind and whatnot. Um, but uh, we got a lot of smiles along the way because people were like, what are, <laughs> what are those cars doing? You know, c- like completely covered in canvas, like on the outside of it. So uh, uh, we got a lot, of, a lot of weird looks from people. Man, five months. That's that's awesome. Then uh, you kind of skipped over this, but you said you ran a marathon through the Gobi Desert with no training. What? <laughs> like, all right, care, care to like explain how this went? I mean, it, I'm it couldn't have went well physically, could it? Uh so yeah, this this is back in the uh, the Mongol Rally at the end of that. Um, so I didn't. My car broke down. I didn't get a chance to drive to Mongolia. Uh, so I felt like I had some unfinished business. And when I got there, I had a, a contact to the, through the Rotary Club that I was talking with uh, the whole time, raising the money for the, the kindergarten they were building. And I was staying with her. Uh, so she picked me up the train station and everything. And um, on the drive to her place, she mentioned, hey, like in a few days, I'm off to the Gobi Desert um, uh, to do this Gobi Marathon. Now keep in mind, she's, she's 69 years old at this time. So... She's like, I'm going to do this. Well, marathon. she's part of the Rotary Club, so yeah, she's right. I mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, hey, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I'm like, well, if you can do it, she's like, well, you could stay here at my flat and watch my uh, my two cats uh, if you'd like, or you could come with us. And so I I did some research online and I found it, it was like a few hundred bucks to join, um, and I'd I'd get to check out Mongolia. Like I, I wouldn't be on my own car, but we have to drive all the way down to the south to the Gobi Desert. Um, and I get to see the scenery on the way, and I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. I can kind of see a bit of Mongolia outside of the capital city if I do this. And so when it came time to sign up, it said, like, fun run, 5K, half marathon, full marathon. And I thought I – didn't, I wasn't able to contact my friend to ask for which one, but I had to sign up for it because, like, the deadline was right then. I may have actually been past it. So I was like, well, just in case, I'm going to sign up for the full marathon and uh, so I did, and we took the 16-hour bus ride down to where the start was, and I met like the fellow other, all foreigners, basically, that were there to run this marathon. And I quickly learned that there were only four people running the marathon, all of them professional marathon runners. Uh, one guy, he was like, this is my eighth marathon this year. The other one said, it's like my 180th marathon of my life. Uh, you know, just like two of the four. And I was just like, wow, like, okay. And I was like, yeah, like I have never run a marathon. Actually, I've never run before. Um, besides like, you know, once a year in high school, you have to like run the mar- the mile and they like time you. Um, except like I would generally get a doctor's note to get out of that because I just didn't like it so much. Because I didn't know how to run and like I just kept getting cramps and stuff. So um, I was like, yeah, I've never really run before. Um Definitely not more than a mile, and I haven't even done a mile for eight, nine years. Uh, and they're like, wow, you're crazy. And I'm like, well, like, how bad can it be, right? Because, like, I know I can, like, run a bit, and you just have to keep going, <laughs> you, you right? You know you can move. Your body will <laughs> physically move, so you can do it. So so I just got, like, all these weird looks to people, and they're like, oh, man, like, are you like, what are you running in? And I'm like, well, I got my like hiking shoes that I've worn the entire Mongol rally. And I got like these like zip off, like convertible pants. And, and then it's like, what? 
they're like, well, how long have you been training? And I'm like, training? I've just been driving a car for six weeks to get here. I've barely had any exercise at all. And they're just like, wow, okay. They're like, well, number one, like your nipples are going to bleed. So here's some Vaseline. So I'm just like, what? I didn't know about any of this stuff. And then come to find out, my friend, the 69-year-old, Bridget, she was running the fun run the 5k. So at that point I was in, I was like, well, I'm going to give it a go. And so, uh, on the morning that we were starting, we drove, like we were camped at the finish line. So we had to drive 26 miles or so to the start. And I was just driving and driving and driving and driving. I'm just like, wow, like this is a lot of miles. Like I gotta, I gotta run this <laughs> in the desert. Uh, okay. So the thing starts, um, I was in the lead uh, for, um, I'd say, the first kilometer, and then uh, due to my long legs, and then I immediately fell in the back, along with uh, the 65-year-old German woman, and we were constantly in the back, although she was beating me most of the way, until we both ran out of water because we fell off course, because the only way they marked a course was with red ribbons tied to like the scrub brush that marked like turn left or right on this path. And there's no features like telling you where to go, no signs because once they did the start thing, then they, they ran off to go to the mid, uh, the 13 mile mark to set up for the half marathon where there was like you know, a good dozen people doing it. So imagine you just look at the desert. There's no features at all. Uh, it's just flat nothingness. Everyone else is so far ahead of you. You don't see them anymore. And you come to like this fork in the road, which is just like a dirt path basically on the desert. And I could have sworn that they said go left, but the German lady said, I think they said go right. So we went right for a bit and then we didn't see anything like footprints and we cut across and it's going at like a V. So the further we go, the further in between these two trails is. And then we cut across, we go to the left side and we don't see any footprints over there either. So we're like, okay, well, where are the footprints? And so we end up getting lost and we lost all of our water and we saw nothing, not even like dust from somebody driving. We were completely off course. We found this nomad that like saved us. He invited us in to like have some tea and we're like, hey, we need to get back to our friends. We're running this marathon. He didn't speak any English, but we kind of used sign language. And he took me on his bike. I said, basically like bring us to where the foreigners are. He took us to this one check. He took me to this one checkpoint. Well, uh, the German lady, she was like, I'm just going to keep going straight. Send them to find me. And I'm like, okay, because we're going <laughs> to take one person on the bike. So we went back to the, the checkpoint, and I had promised the Mongolian nomad guy to give him some money for the, the gas. But the, the checkpoint they didn't have any, ga- any money on them. Um, so like, you have to go to the checkpoint even further back. So we, he drove me even further and I borrowed some money and we gave it to the, the nomad to like pay for his gas. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to keep running. So I kept running, but by this point, everyone is already past that checkpoint and I'm by myself. So I continued to run by myself for the next, I've got to imagine 15, 16 miles. Uh, and like whenever I get to a checkpoint, they're already folding it up and they're like, hey, like just continue going right here along this trail. But I'm like, wait, isn't this supposed to be like a loop here, like a six mile loop? And they're like, no, man, it's fine. Like just go. And I'm like, no, no, no. I've already come this far. Like I'm going to do it. So I would just like go on the six mile loop and like loose sand by myself, 
come back to the point and then like keep going, keep going, keep going. Of course, like I wasn't able to run the whole time. Like sometimes I'd have to walk. Um, but in the end, I ended up finishing after like six and a half hours of like getting lost and running out of water and like being saved by the nomad. Um, since we went off course, the German lady is still lost out in the desert, right? <laughs> they, they never found her again. No, no, they, they, they found her, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. I found out, uh, when I talked with her, but I was the last one to come in. Everyone was like waiting there to cheer me on, which is pretty cool. Uh, as I like ran under the, uh, the finish line and, uh, yeah, like, so I, I made it, but then the next three days I could barely walk. It's never easy with you, man. It's never like, yeah, I ran a marathon. It was really physically hard, but I did it. It's like I got lost and was on a bike and had to go get money. Oh, my. All right. Well, that's a, that's a I'm great... Pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure I, I did more than 26.2 miles because we went so off track. Right. And I was I was put back like a few checkpoints back. Um, I'm I'm relatively positive that I did more like 28 or 30 miles. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Always go on that extra mile. Always go on that extra mile. <laughs> um, I, usually at the end of the show, I ask people what their biggest travel mishap is. Now, I don't know if that was yours or not. I'm sure there's other ones. But before we get to that question, if that is the biggest one, we'll just, we'll just at the end, we'll say like, see above, right? Like, go listen to five minutes ago. Oh, um, that's funny. <laughs> but I, I, I want to talk, uh, you've been to over or almost 100 countries or getting close to there, right? 80 some, and you're at 123 places in 2015. You've done an extensive amount of travel. What are some of your favorite places? And, and I never let anyone get out of this thing by saying, oh, what do you mean by favorite? It's like, no. In your head, what comes to mind when we say like, what are some of your favorite places you've ever been? Oh, it, it goes back to what you asked me before as far as like the spots that I find myself in often. Um, so if it's got good food, um, if it's got like interesting history, uh, easy to get in and out of and around. Uh, and like, so that, that's Turkey, it's Thailand, it's Japan. Um, I love all those spots. Um, there's other things, other places that I like just for like the novelty factor, such as like Ethiopia. I think it's a very, unique country um places like libya soon after the fall of Gaddafi, you know that's more time-based uh uniqueness but you know that was very interesting to be there at that time um somaliland you know breakaway public of somalia like that was pretty cool because we almost met the president uh and he was like sending his guards to like guard us just randomly um things like that but like yeah i would say love turkey um, love Thailand, love Japan. Um, trying to think if there's any anywhere else. Uh, Colombia, I've been to a few times. I, I quite like Colombia, Medellin. Um, I've been to Cali a few times in Colombia. Uh, yeah, like th- those places. I mean, uh, I still I love I love the U.S. You know, where I was born and raised. I love spending time there every so often. Uh, but I'm kind of addicted to novelty at this point, so uh, that's why I'm spending so much time outside of my own country. But uh, yeah, I'd say I'd say those those spots. Yeah. Well, you do look pretty regal. I mean, when you stand up tall, what is it? Six, six, three, six, four. I can understand why that, uh, why the uh, king of Somaliland would send his guards to guard you, man. You know, hey, um, that's Scott Brills, uh, world world traveler and adventurer, right there. What are what are some places that you'd like to get to that you haven't been to yet? Like, what's some stuff on your hit list? Um, funny enough, I've never been to Brazil. 
me either. I've wanted to go for a while. It just it never it never materialized. I've I've almost like I've had my finger on the trigger of buying the ticket before, but it just uh, for whatever reason didn't work. Uh, North Korea, although now is not the best time. Uh, again, what like I've wanted to go there. What do you mean, man? <laughs> Uh, also, Americans are now banned from going there. <laughs> yeah, a little more uh, difficult. Yeah, uh, let's see, where else? There's a few other spots. Uh, just kind of like go through the, the map of my mind. Uh, well, it constantly uh, changes too, right? Is it, is it the same for right. you where you have stuff and then it falls off? Not even for any reason. Uh, it's just something else comes into your head at that point. I would, I would, I would say Brazil. I, I've been lucky enough to cross a bunch of countries off my list. But I would say Brazil, North Korea... Sri Lanka, Georgia, the country, and Portugal. I've oddly never been to Portugal either. Georgia is my favorite country in the world. You would absolutely And love I, it, I've heard so many people say that. A lot of people I know have been to Georgia. Some have even gotten residency because it's really easy. Um, yeah, that's awesome. maybe next year. Uh, anytime I've got... That's a place where I could actually give you some hookups there. Um, mm. Fantastic, yeah, fantastic yeah, yeah. country, man. It's it's awesome. And if people have listened to this podcast before, they know it. It usually pops up at least every other podcast, decide, like the country, <laughs> in some manner or form. So it was. we were going to miss it. We were going to be off our average here until you brought it up. So nicely done. Nicely done, Scott. All right. We, we talked about um, the places you want to go and things like that. What about saving money? Because you did do that for a while. Do you have any any tips for people that you found to be really practical that you've been able to say, all right, I'm going to save money here, you know, in whatever way, form or fashion, doesn't even matter really what country you're in that you kind of implement as you go around the world. Um, I, I make a lot of my own food. So, you know, the ability to, uh, to cook for yourself, even if it's like basic stuff, like, yeah, I don't, I don't really go hardcore into, uh, you know, make it look nice, whatnot. I go into like things I can make once and like eat for a few meals and stuff like that, you know? Um, but, uh, that's, that's definitely a big one. Um, I guess, uh, saving money. Number two would be, uh, don't go to spots that are really expensive. <laughs> like, like Norway. <laughs> right. My, I, just, I just got a text from my brother today talk, asking where he should go in Europe. And he's like, ah, oh, maybe Denmark or Scandinavia or maybe Eastern Europe. I'm like, well, if you want to save money, go to Eastern Europe. If you want to get gouged, go to Scandinavia. It's beautiful, but yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, I also tend not to spend a ton of money on lodging. Like I go pretty basic because... Um, Especially when I'm traveling, like not when I'm sitting in one place working so much, but when I'm traveling, I know I'm I'm going to be out um, exploring most of the time. So all I do is I just want a, a clean, safe place with a shower and, and a decent bed. And so I found uh, for extended travel, taking advantage of Airbnb's weekly and monthly discounts can sometimes lead to really nice, especially the monthly discounts. I mean, some of those are discount forty percent. It's, it's huge, um, and. Uh, even Booking.com. Booking.com I've used for a lot of the, the shorter stays when it's just a few days. And uh, you know the ability to kind of uh, set it so like, you know, I want the high review score, um, but I want, you know, up to $55 a night pricing and that kind of thing. And it'll find you, um, it'll, it'll find you like a very nice subset of properties that you can just easily scroll through and just be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go here. And so it's an easy way to get, you know, something that's in your budget kind of like what you're looking for um so yeah, yeah i'd say that those, those would be my tips 
And, and we hammer it home a lot, but the slow travel really, really does help you save money in a lot of ways. Obviously, accommodations is one, like you said, weekly, monthly discounts. You know, people want as an Airbnb owner myself, like if someone was coming in for a month, that's great. Like I'll give you a great deal because someone's going to be in. I'm not going to have to worry about it. But it also helps, you know, you know the best places to shop. You maybe you learn a little bit of the language or, you know, you you understand what the pricing should be for someone who comes in for a few days versus someone who's who lives there. Uh, you know, you find the better deals at the restaurants, things like that. Um, not everyone can travel slowly. Scott and I are recovering fast travelers, right? Um, <laughs> as we get through here, but it is certainly a way that's going to stretch your dollar much, 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 much further if you start implementing a, a bit of a slower travel lifestyle for sure. You gave us the marathon mishap. Is there any other <laughs> one that you're, and I know there's, there are probably th- literally thousands, but is there one that sticks out in your head that you say like, this is a story when someone asked me, what's my biggest travel mishap that comes right to the top? Yeah, yeah, there are some that come to the top. I, I almost um, I almost want to switch it around a bit just because I've, I've talked about the bandits in Ethiopia story a bunch of times, like even on other podcasts. We'll and save that so for next time you come back up. on. Yeah, yeah we'll let, me, let me switch it up a bit and give you some, some newer content, or not newer, but fresher content that I don't talk about as much. Um, same trip. So it's uh, UK to Cape Town. And uh, we, so it's a group of five of us. We got the two shoe cars and we were stuck in Egypt for a month, longer than we wanted. So five weeks altogether because Sudan wouldn't let us in because we're all Americans and America just kicked out some uh, Darfur war criminals, uh, Sudanese out of the US. And so the Sudan, Sudan, retaliated by saying, okay, well, Americans can't come to Sudan, which generally is not an issue because there's not a lot of Americans just like touristing in, in Sudan. However, that happened right in the middle of our trip. And so all of a sudden we're like, well, we can't go to Sudan. Well, the, the thing is, there's no other way over land to get there. And we looked at everything, every possible option. Well, luckily through a lot of like crazy back channels, we ended up getting visas to Sudan. Now in that time, since we were stuck in southern Egypt in Aswan for so long, uh, another couple that was doing a UK to South Africa drive that we had been in touch with, but we had only seen in, e- in Italy for a day, um, was able to catch up with us. We were renting an Airbnb on this uh, island, Elephantine Island in the middle of the Nile for the whole time we were there for like a month. And we said to this couple... Uh, English South African couple. Hey, you know, stay in our house. We got extra room. Um, we can wait this out together because uh, you, you guys can't get in there either. Uh, get to Sudan and they they need to go over there as well. So we spent a lot of time together. Well, it turns out that during that time, um, and then through driving to Sudan for about a week um, and into Ethiopia, there was a romance developing, but. It was a romance between the guy who was in this couple driving down in a Land, Land Rover um, from the UK to South Africa to start a new life together after dating for seven years to start a new life in his hometown or home uh, country of South Africa. Um, he started a relationship with my friend that I invited that was part of our group behind everyone's back. Well, this uh, exploded in spectacular fashion one night when we were in Addis Ababa, uh, Ethiopia, 
uh, we had just gotten into the city. We went to this place where we had rooftop tents, and that's where we slept every night mostly, and um, except for the rare times when we, we checked in somewhere to take a shower properly. So it was the middle of the night, and uh, the girl of the couple, I could hear you know, in the car next to us going down the ladder of rooftop tent, walking over in the middle of the night and being like, like hello, like she, just like yelling at her tent. And it's, I, I'm in the tent with the girl, the other girl, like, and, and my other buddy, three of us in this tent. And the girl is part of the couple. She's like, hello, like, I know you're awake. I have something to talk to you about. And I was like, oh, no. Because like, I already had an inkling about what was happening, right? I was like, oh, this isn't good. And my friend, this girl next to me, she's like, she's like, oh, should I go down there and talk with her? I'm like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Pretend you're asleep. And luckily, um, my buddy who did the Mongol rally, his, his girlfriend that was also with us, came down out of her tent to console the partner. Uh, she had found out what had happened and basically asked him directly, like, has this been happening? And he was very truthful. And uh, needless to say, her whole entire world collapsed before her because she had quit her job, sold everything she owned, packed as much as she could into this land rover and with this guy she's been dating for seven years going down to start a new life together in his home country and then he's like i don't love you anymore i love this girl that i just met like a few weeks ago now that would have been awkward enough except for over the next few days the two girls decided both to keep going uh, like no, so, neither of them. Okay, okay. Interesting decision on their part. The the guy of the couple, he he told her to go home. He's like, I think you should just go home. And she's like, you know what? No, like this is my trip too. I've been planning this out. This is as much my trip as your trip. So screw you. I'm gonna stay. Which hey, you know, credit to her. Like, I mean, she should. She shouldn't just like go home. Um, you know, way to way to have those woman balls. But um. Needless to say, over the next few months we were together, uh, there were a lot of awkward times, a lot of sudden um, outbursts, yelling, crying, one time involving hyperventilation where the girl had to be taken to the hospital because of breathing problems. Um, it was a hell in a certain respect. Uh, to not only be on this very difficult, strenuous, challenging trip for months with the same people all the time, but also to have this love triangle going on right next to you that you can't escape. And, and oh yeah, like it caused all sorts of issues. Um, but you know what? In the end, um, although they kind of broke off right at the end and went in two different vehicles for the last bit of it, um, everyone and every vehicle made it to Cape Town. Wow. Not exactly the plan you had for the Shubarus, but uh, nonetheless, you get an interesting story. And uh, yeah, that's something that you can't plan for, right? Picking up people <laughs> because they were going, because you guys couldn't get into Sedan, and then having uh, a few people's worlds flipped upside down while in a rooftop tent in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Very interesting. Yep. Not a, And not a mishap. That's what I love. Not love. I shouldn't say I love anything about that story. Yeah. I feel bad for the people involved. But about travel is that these things happen that you're like, I couldn't write this any other way. Like this, you wouldn't imagine something like this would happen. And yet it did. Similar to your uh, marathon mishap, which I also love the fact that you decide to run it in hiking boots and 
zip off pants. Um, just awesome, awesome stuff, Scott. And uh, I know you mentioned at the at the beginning of the show, kind of the stuff you have coming in, uh, coming up in the pipeline. Anything else you want to share that you have coming up? Like, what are you most excited about over the next eight, nine, ten months of all the stuff that you're doing? Well, I've only got it planned out uh, until May, like we were mentioning, but uh, really excited to to go over to Tanzania for the first time in three years and then do my friends and family safari. I've been setting up for a few months uh, and visit with my partner and his family for the first time in three years. Um, I'm really excited about the rickshaw run coming up um, in January, uh, my third one, and uh, the safari I'm leading in South Africa and, of course, Japan. I'm always excited to go to Japan. It'll be my 13th time back, uh, and I'm looking for, for five hearty individuals that love uh, Japanese food and uh, have been to Japan and want to go back or have never been before and want to go for the first time. Um, and that'll be from March 9th to 21st. And, and again, I'm looking for five people to do that. You can find details all about it, everything you could think of uh, on my website at uh, scottbrills.com. Awesome. That's what I was getting at. How can people find out about the Japan, the Eat Japan tours also keep up with what you're doing. And then the safari tours have their own, or uh, the safari, yeah, I guess they're tours, right? Consider tours. Safari tours yeah. have their own website, right? Yeah, yeah. Pomojasafaris.com. That's P A M O J A safaris.com. And uh, we're actually launching the new site within the next week. Uh, or at least that's what we're thinking. And so uh, you can go there to find out all the information about the routes and, uh, and the prices and all that stuff. Basically, you book a ticket there and uh, we do everything else from on the ground, from airport pickup to drop off. Everything's included except for alcohol, uh, you know, luxury accommodations, great food, amazing guides, of course. And uh, we do it at a price that is equal to going in a big group like I first did, uh, 16 people or so, but we charge the same but do it custom and private. So you just give us the dates um, and you are with your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, friend, whatever. Uh, we could do any amount of people and we develop a custom experience based on what you want to see, how many days you have, and uh, we do all the work on your end and you just enjoy it. Awesome. And we will, guys, we will, of course, link up everything we talked about in the show notes today. Um, PomojaSafaris.com, ScottBrills.com. We'll link up the adventurous so you can see kind of the, the rickshaw run and, and, uh, what that involves in the Mongol rally. And you have some stuff on your site about that. So we'll find those posts. So if you do want to get that, don't forget, guys, extra pack of peanuts.com slash shows. Find this episode. You'll be able to dig into all the stuff that Scott and I talked about today. And I think it is safe to say, the people listening here, I mean, we have just scratched the surface. As you saw, more and more stories are coming out with Scott. So, Scott, it's been, it took us three years to be able to actually <laughs> get on and have the first podcast, but I guarantee you it will not take us three years to come back. There's plenty of stories. You've got enough going on in in the next seven months to come back on and give us a, a, a taste of what that looked like. So, thank you again for coming on. It was a blast as always. Yeah, man, it's worth the wait. And uh, yeah, like I said, uh, we'll, we'll have to schedule another one at some point and talk about all the new stuff happening. That's right. Don't forget, guys, too, this show is sponsored by Tortuga Backpacks. So if you are getting out there and traveling, you want just carry-on size backpack, check out tortugabackpacks.com. You can use the promo code EPOP. That'll get you 10% off your entire order. Scott, many more stories to come from you. Thanks for sharing. I am, I am going to bestow on you that you are the most interesting man in the world, at least in my <laughs> sphere of influence here. Because, um, again, I knew maybe a third of what came out in the podcast, and we were only talking for about an hour and a half here. So 
Lots more to come. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for just, yeah, showing people that this type of lifestyle, no matter what what you want, whether it's that fast travel, go, 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 or you're going to slow it down, build a business, um, it's, it's feasible, it's possible, and it changes with you as you want or need to change. So thanks for being an inspiration for us all, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for your continued support. As always, that makes us number one radio travel podcast on iTunes. And until next time, happy free travels.